Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Thin Air. It is a beautiful Sunday, Memorial Day weekend afternoon, and I am currently climbing in the garage. Felt this was as good a time as any to uh, run the old microphone. Um, today, I thought I would share one of my favorite Alan Watts essays. Um, an essay entitled This Is It from a collection of essays by the same name. Uh, it's a great little volume, uh, nice, small, uh, easy to tote around volume that has six great essays that um, all kind of in some way relate to that theme, the This Is It theme. So, uh, yeah, I thought I would try and just read one of these because... Um, Alan Watts, as I've said a number of times now, is really such a profound character. Um, really uh, was probably one of the best philosophers that our Western um, civilization has ever had because he so beautifully um, took the insight from the, the East, the Near East, the Far East, uh, mixed with a kind of Christian background. He actually... Um, he's English. He was born in England. He ended up living in the United States in California. But uh, he was born in England and uh, was raised in the uh, English um, or the, the Church of England and was actually, um, I mean, pretty involved in it. At one point in his life, he was uh, training for the, um, I'm not sure what you'd call it in the Church of England, but uh, basically to become a priest. I mean, he was well on his way. He'd been a chaplain. And um, so very much a part of like the, the Christian tradition. And then uh, his mother actually, I think, did a bit of, I'm, I'm assuming it was like missionary work or something. She was in China quite a bit. And while she was there, she would uh, collect little uh, art pieces and paintings and whatnot, and a lot of uh, Alan Watts's childhood was just filled with those strange uh, objects from the Far East, and um, he often talks about seeing grass for the first time uh, in studying a, uh, or just, you know, looking at and reflecting on a, a Zen um, ink painting of grasses, and how he, uh, even as a child, looking at those paintings and those things just had this sense that something was, was there that just wasn't talked about or explained or really drawn attention to, yet was the, the center of the whole piece. But anyway, um, him growing up, seeing this material, although being in the, uh, in the Catholic or the, uh, the Church of England, um, still just uh, was always fascinated by this. And so when he was older and um, had more exposure to some of those philosophies, he was really just able to um, kind of separate himself from all religions, um, from his upbringing and what he was discovering, and not subscribe to any as being more or less profound than any other, but just kind of synthesizing um, everything through the filter of our Western world, but um, really relaying these, um, these Far Eastern traditions in a way that few others have ever, have ever um, accomplished. There have definitely been some others, uh, like Paul Reps and um, even, even some like Japanese authors like uh, D.T. Suzuki, um, who, portray, uh, who portray the world religions in their most 
subtle and pure, purest sense, I guess, if that makes sense. It's uh, almost uh, a lot of the time going back to the roots of these religions and finding like what was the core underlying realization from which the rest of the culture uh, piled up on top. Uh, so, so with that kind of introduction to Alan Watts, um, he went on to write something like, uh, I mean, many, many dozens of books, uh, something like 30 or 30 or 50 books, something like that, and lectured throughout the English-speaking world on these topics. And one of the great things about that is um, speaking mostly in the, the 60s, and a little bit into the 70s, uh, there are just troves of Alan Watts uh, lecture recordings that I, I mean, that's where I've learned most about Alan Watts. I definitely have read most of his, well, not most, but a, a good handful of his books. And uh, there's something in those audio lectures that are just so, so wonderful because you actually get to hear him speak and uh, his sense of humor. And they're just, he was definitely the man. So, uh, um he, he was able to actually uh, make it his living just uh, giving these talks. He lived on a ferry boat <laughs> in the uh, bay of, um, I think he was in San Francisco, somewhere in California anyway, um, Sausalito, something like that. Um, but uh, was able to just make a, make a living just uh, giving talks and generally being a beatnik. So... Um, that's uh, that's who Alan Watts was in a nutshell. Um, but I have in front of me here a uh, copy of This Is It, and I was going to read the title essay, which itself is called This Is It. And it's, um, well, I'll just go ahead and read it. So, Alan Watts, This Is It. The most impressive fact in man's spiritual, intellectual, and poetic experience has always been, for me, the universal prevalence of those astonishing moments of insight which Richard Buke called cosmic consciousness. There is no really satisfactory name for this type of experience. To call it mystical is to confuse it with visions of another world or of gods and angels. To call it spiritual or metaphysical is to, su is to suggest that it is not also extremely concrete and physical, while the term cosmic consciousness itself has the unpoetic flavor of occultist jargon. But from all historical times and cultures, we have reports of these same unmistakable sensations emerging, as a rule, quite suddenly and unexpectedly, and from no clearly understood cause. To the individual thus enlightened, it appears as a vivid and overwhelming certainty that the universe, precisely as it is at this moment, as a whole and in every one of its parts, is so completely right as to need no explanation or justification beyond what it simply is. Existence not only ceases to be a problem, the mind is so wonderstruck at the self-evident and self-sufficient fitness of things as they are, including what would ordinarily be thought the very worst, that it cannot find any word strong enough to express the perfection and the beauty of the experience. Its clarity sometimes gives the sensation that the world has become transparent or luminous, and its simplicity the sensation that is pervaded and ordered by a supreme intelligence. At the same time, it is usual for the individual to feel that the whole world has become his own body, and whatever he is has not only become, but always has been what everything else is. 
It is not that he loses his identity to the point of feeling that he actually looks out through all other eyes, becoming literally omniscient, but rather that his individual consciousness and existence is a point of view temporarily adopted by something immeasurably greater than himself. The central core of the experience seems to be the conviction or insight that the immediate now, whatever its nature, is the goal and fulfillment of all living. Surrounding and flowing from this insight is an emotional ecstasy, a sense of intense relief, freedom, lightness, and often of almost unbearable love for the world, which is, however, secondary. Often the pleasure of the experience is confused with the experience and the insight lost in the ecstasy, so that in trying to retain the secondary effects of the experience, the individual misses its point, that the immediate now is complete even when it is not ecstatic. For ecstasy is a necessarily impermanent contrast in the constant fluctuation of our feelings. But insight, when clear enough, persists. Having once understood a particular skill, the facility tends to, the faculty remain, tends to remain. The terms in which a man interprets this experience are naturally drawn from the religious and philosophical ideas of his culture, and their differences often conceal its basic identity. As water seeks the course of least resistance, so the emotions clothe themselves in the symbols that lie most readily to hand, and the association is so swift and automatic that the symbol may appear to be the very heart of the experience. Clarity, the disappearance of problems, suggests light, and in moments of such acute clarity there may be the physical sensation of light penetrating everything. To a theist this will naturally seem to be a glimpse of the of the presence of God, as in the celebrated testimonial of Pascal, the year of grace, 1654, Monday the 23rd of November, St. Clement's Day, from about half past ten in the evening until about half past twelve midnight, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the wise, certainty, joy, certainty, feeling, joy, peace, or, in a case quoted by William James, The very heavens seemed to open and pour down rays of light and glory, not for a moment only, but all day and night. Floods of light and glory seemed to pour through my soul, and oh, how I was changed, and everything became new. My horses and hogs and everybody seemed changed. But clarity may also suggest transparency or the sense that the world confronting us is no longer an obstacle and the body no longer a burden. And to a Buddhist, this will just as naturally call to mind the doctrine of reality as the ungraspable, indefinable void, or shunyata. Quote, I came back into the hall and was about to go to my seat when the whole outlook changed. A broad expanse opened and the ground appeared as if all caved in. As I looked around and up and down, the whole universe with its multitudinous sense objects now appeared quite different. What was loathsome before, together with ignorance and passions, was now seen to be nothing else but the outflow of my own inmost nature, which it in itself remained bright, true, and transparent." End quote. As one and the same pain may be described either as a hot pang or as a cold sting, so the descriptions of this experience may take on forms that seem to be completely opposed. One person may say that he has found the answer to the whole mystery of life, but somehow cannot put it into words. 
Another will say that there never was a mystery, and thus no answer to it. For what the experience made clear to him was the irrelevance and artificiality of all of our questions. One declares himself convinced that there is no death, his true self being as eternal as the universe. Another states that death has simply ceased to matter, because the persistent, the present moment is so complete it requires no future. One feels himself taken up and united with a life infinitely other than his own. But as the beating of the heart may be regarded as something that happens to you, or something that you do, depending on the point of view, so another will feel that he has experienced not a transcendent God, but his own inmost nature. One will get the sense that his ego or self has expanded to become the entire universe, whereas another will feel that he has lost himself altogether, and that what he called his ego was never anything but an, an abstraction. One will describe himself as infinitely enriched, while another will speak of being brought to such absolute poverty that he owns not even his mind and body, and has not a care in the world. Rarely is the experience described without metaphors that might be misleading if taken literally. But in reading Bernard Burson's sketch for a self-portrait, I came across a passage which is one of the simplest and cleanest accounts of it I have ever seen. Quote, it was a morning in early summer. A silver haze shimmered and trembled over the lime trees. The air was laden with their fragrant fragrance. The temperature was like a caress. I remember, I need not recall, that I climbed up a tree stump and felt suddenly immersed in itness. I did not call it by that name. I had no need for words. It and I were one. End quote. Just it, quote unquote as when we use the word to denote the superlative, or the exact point, or intense reality, or what we are always looking for. Not the neuter sense of the mere object, but something still more alive and far wider than the personal, and for which we use the simplest of words because we have no word for it. It is especially difficult to find the right means of expression for the experience in the cultural context of Christianity. For while this enlightenment comes just as much to Christians as to anyone else, the Christian mystic has always been in danger of conflict with the defenders of orthodoxy. Christian dogmatics insist firmly upon the radical difference between God and his created universe, and between God and the human soul. They insist upon God's, God's eternal opposition to an abhorrence for evil and sin. And since these are very persistent realities, upon the effective salvation of the world only at the end of time. Even then, hell will remain for, forever as a state of permanent imprisonment and torment for the forces of evil. Nevertheless, the doctrine of omnipotence, that nothing, not even sin, can happen without the permission of God's will, makes it possible even in this difficult framework for the Christian mystic to express the unspeakable doctrine that sin is behovable, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Which is a quote. The Christian sense of reality, of evil, and of time, and history as the process of overcoming evil remains with us so strongly even in the post-Christian intellectual climate of today that we have difficulty in accepting the cosmic consciousness as more than an inspiring hallucination. Admissible it may be as the vision of some far-off divine event in the future, but with our progressive view of the world it seems impossible to accept it as a vision of the way things are. Even in the description which Butte gave of his own experience, there is a significant use of the future tense. 
Quote, All at once, without warning of any kind, I found myself wrapped in a flame-colored cl cloud. For an instant I thought of fire, an immense conflagration somewhere close by in that great city. Conflagration somewhere close by in that great city. The next, I knew the fire was within myself. Directly afterward, there came upon me a sense of exultation, of immense joyousness accompanied or immediately followed by an intellectual illumination impossible to describe. Among other things, I did not merely come to believe, but I saw that the universe is not composed of dead matter, but is, on the contrary, a living presence. I became conscious in myself of eternal life. It was not a conviction that I would have eternal life, but a consciousness that I possessed eternal life then. I saw that all men are immortal, that the cosmic order is such that without any pre-adventure all things work together for the good of each and all, that the foundation principle of the world, of all the worlds, is what we call love, and that the happiness of each and all is in the long run absolutely certain. The vision lasted a few seconds and was gone, but the memory of it and the sense of the reality of what it taught has remained during the quarter of a century which has since elapsed." End quote. Nevertheless, the consciousness that I possessed eternal life then corresponds to the Buddhist realization that, quote, all things are in nirvana from the very beginning, unquote, and that the enlightenment or awakening is not the creation of a new state of affairs, but the recognition of what always is. Such experiences imply, then, that our normal perception as valuation of the world is a subject, subjective but collective nightmare. They suggest that our ordinary sense of practical reality, of the world as seen on Monday morning, is a construct of socialized, con socialized conditioning and repression, a system of selective inattention whereby we are taught to screen out aspects and relations within nature which do not accord with the rules of the game of civilized life. Yet the vision almost invariably includes the realization that this very restriction of consciousness is also part of the eternal fitness of things. In the words of the Zen master Gensha, If you understand, things are such as they are. If you do not understand, things are such as they are. This quote, such as they are, end quote, being the utterly unproblematic and self-sufficient character of this eternal now in which, as Zhuangzi said, a duck's legs, though short, cannot be lengthened without discomfort to the duck. A crane's legs, though long, cannot be shortened without discomfort to the crane. For in some way the vision seems to come about through accepting the rightness of the fact that one does not have it, through being willing to be as imperfect as one is, perfectly imperfect. Now it is easy to see how this way of seeing things might be acceptable in cultures without the sense of hope and history, how indeed it might be the only basis for a philosophy that would make life tolerable. Indeed, it is very probable that the historical, dyna the historical dynamism of the Christian West is a rather recent theological discovery, for we can no longer sing without qualms of the social conscious, the laissez-faire hymn which says, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, he made them high or lowly and ordered their estate. And then go on to exclaim, All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. 
But even though it may be exploited for this purpose, the experience itself is in no sense a philosophy designed to justify or desensitize oneself to the inadequacies of life. Like falling in love, it has a minimal connection with any particular cultural background or economic position. It descends upon the rich and the poor, the moral and the immoral, the happy and the miserable without distinction. It carries with it the overwhelming conviction that the world is, in every respect, a miracle of glory. And though this might logically exclude the necessity to share the vision with others and awaken them from their nightmare, the usual reaction is a sense, not of duty, but of sheer delight in communicating the experience by word or deed. From this new perspective, the crimes and follies of man's ordinary nightmare life seem neither evil nor stupid, but simply pitiable. One has the extraordinarily odd sensation of seeing people in their mean or malicious pursuits looking at the same time like gods, as if they were supremely happy without knowing it. As Kirillov, <laughs> Kirillov puts it in Dostoevsky's The Possess, Possessed, quote, Man is unhappy because he doesn't know he's happy. It's only that. That's all. That's all. If anyone finds out, he'll become happy at once, that minute. It's all good. I discovered it all of a sudden. And if anyone dies of hunger, he asks, and if anyone insults and outrages the little girl, is that good? Yes. If anyone blows his brains out for the baby, that's good too. And if anyone doesn't, that's good too. It's all good, all. It's good for all those who know that it's all good. If they knew that it was good for them, it would be good for them. But as long as they don't know it's good for them, it will be bad for them. That's the whole idea, the whole of it. They're bad because they don't know they're good. When they find out, they won't outrage a little girl. They'll find out that they're good, and they'll all become good, every one of them. Ordinarily, one might feel that there is a shocking contrast between the marvelous structure of the human organism and its brain, on the one hand, and the uses to which most people put it, on the other. Yet there could perhaps be a point of view from which the natural wonder of the organism simply outshines the degrading performance of its superficial consciousness. In a somewhat similar way, this strange opening of vision does not permit attention to remain focused narrowly upon the details of evil. They become subordinate to the all-pervading intelligence and beauty of the total design. Such insight has not the slightest connection with shallow optimism, nor with grasping the meaning of the universe in terms of some neat philosophical simplification. Beside it, all philosophical opinions and disputations sound like somewhat sophisticated versions of children yelling back and forth, tis, tisn't, tis, tisn't, until, if only the philosophers would do likewise, they catch the nonsense of it and roll over backwards with hoots of laughter. Furthermore, so far from being the smug realization of a Mr. Pangloss, the experience has a tendency to arise in situations of total extremity or despair, when the individual finds himself without any alternative but to surrender himself entirely. Something of this kind came to me in a dream when I was about eight years old. I was sick at the time and almost delirious with fever, and in the dream I found myself attached, face downward, and spread-eagled to an immense ball of steel, which was spinning about the earth. I knew in this dream with complete certainty that I was doomed to be spun in this sickening and terrifying world forever and ever. And the conviction was so intense that there was nothing for it but to give up 
For this was hell itself, and nothing lay before me but a literal everlastingness of pain. But in the moment when I surrendered, the ball seemed to strike against a mountain and disintegrate. And the next thing I knew was that I was sitting on a stretch of warm sand with nothing left of the ball except crumpled fragments of sheet metal scattered around me. This was not, of course, the experience of cosmic consciousness, but simply of the fact that that release in extremity lies through and not away from the problem. That other experience came much later. Uh, cosmic consciousness, presumably twice with intensity and other times with what might be called more of a glow than a brilliant flash. Shortly after I had first begun to study Indian and Chinese philosophy, I was sitting one night by the fire, trying to make out what was the right attitude of mind for meditation as it is practiced in Hindu and Buddhist disciplines. It seemed to me that several attitudes were possible, but as they appeared mutually exclusive and contradictory, I was trying to fit them into one, all to no purpose. Finally, in sheer disgust, I decided to reject them all and to have no special attitude of mind whatsoever. In the force of throwing them away, it seemed that I threw myself away as well, for quite suddenly the weight of my own body disappeared. I felt that I owned nothing, not even a self, and that nothing owned me. The whole world became as transparent and unobstructed as my own mind. The problem of life simply ceased to exist. And for about 18 hours, I and everything around me felt like the wind blowing leaves across the field on an autumn day. The second time, a few years later, came after a period when I had been attempting to practice what Buddhists call recollection, or shmirti, or constant awareness of the immediate present, as distinct from the usual distracted ramblings of reminiscence and anticipation. But in discussing it one evening, someone said to me, but why try to live in the present? Surely we are always completely in the present even when we're thinking about the past or the future. This actually quite obvious remark again brought on the sudden sensation of having no weight. At the same time, the present seemed to become a kind of moving stillness, an eternal stream from which neither I nor anything could deviate. I saw that evening, just as it is now, is it. I saw that everything, just as it is now, is it, is the whole point of there being life and a universe. I saw that when the Upanishad said, Thou art that, or all this world is Brahma, they meant just exactly what they said. Each thing, every event, each experience, in its inescapable nowness and in all its own particular individuality, was precisely what it should be, and so much so that it acquired a, divin a divine authority and originality. It struck me with the fullest clarity that none of this depended on my seeing it to be so. That was the way things were, whether I understood it or not. And if I did not understand, that was it too. Furthermore, I felt I, felt I now understood what Christianity might mean by the love of God, namely, that despite the commonsensical imperfection of things, they were nonetheless loved by God just as they are and that this loving of them was at the same time the godding of them. This time, the vivid sensation of lightness and clarity lasted a full week. These experiences, reinforced by others that have followed, have been the enlivening force of all my work in writing and in philosophy since that time, though I have come to realize that how I feel, whether the actual sensation of freedom and clarity is present or not, is not the point. For again, to feel heavy or restricted is also it. 
But with this point of departure, a philosopher is faced with a strange problem of communication, especially to the degree that his philosophy seems to have some affinity with religion. People appear to be under the fixed impression that one speaks or writes of these things in order to improve them or do some good. Assuming, too, that the speaker has himself been improved and is able to speak with authority. In other words, the philosopher is forced into the role of preacher and is in turn expected to practice what he preaches. Thereupon, the truth of what he says is tested by his character and his morals, whether he shows anxiety or not, whether he depends on, ma on material crutches, quote-unquote, such as wine or tobacco, whether he has stomach ulcers or likes money, whether he loses his temper or gets depressed or falls in love when he shouldn't, or sometimes looks a bit tired and frayed at the edges. All these criteria might be valid if the philosopher were preaching freedom from being human, or if he were trying to make himself and others radically better. In the span of one's lifetime, it is, of course, possible for almost every human being to improve himself, within limits set by energy, time, temperament, and the level from which he begins. Obviously, then, there is a proper place for preachers and other technical advisors in the disciplines of human betterment. But the limits within which such improvements may be made are small in comparison with the vast aspects of our nature and our circumstances which remain the same, and which will be very difficult to improve, even were it desirable to do so. I am saying, therefore, that while there is a place for bettering oneself and others, Solving problems and coping with situations is by no means the only or even the chief business of life, nor is it the principal work of philosophy. Human purposes are pursued within an immense circling universe which does not seem to me to have any purpose, in our sense, at all. Nature is much more playful than purposeful, and the probability that it has no special goals for the future need not strike one as a defect. On the contrary, the processes of nature as we see them, both in the surrounding world and in the involuntary aspects of our own organism, are much more like art than like business, politics, or religion. They are especially like the arts of music and dancing, which unfold themselves without aiming at future destinations. No one imagines that a symphony is supposed to improve in quality as it goes along, or that the whole object of playing it is to reach the finale. The point of music is discovered in every moment of playing and listening to it. It is the same, I feel, with the greater part of our lives, and if we are unduly absorbed in improving them, we might forget altogether to live them. The musician whose chief concern it is to make every performance better than the last may so fail to participate and delight in his own music that he will impress his audience only with the anxious rigor of his technique. Thus it is by no means the main work of a philosopher to be classed with the, mor with the moralists and the reformers. There is such a thing as philosophy, the love of wisdom, in the spirit of the artist. Such philosophy will not preach or advocate practices leading to improvement. As I understand it, the work of the philosopher as artist is to reveal and celebrate the eternal and purposeless background of human life. Out of simple exuberance or wonder, he wants to tell others of the point of view from which the world is unimaginably good as it is, with people just as they are. No matter how difficult it may be to express this point of view without sounding smug or appearing to be a wishful dreamer, some hint of it may be suggested if the philosopher has had the good fortune to have experienced it himself. This may sound like a purpose, like a desire to improve, to those who insist upon seeing all human activity in terms of goal-seeking. 
The trouble is that our Western common sense is firmly Aristotelian, and we therefore believe that the will never acts except for some good or pleasure. But upon analysis, this turns out to say no more than we do what we do. For if we always do what pleases us, even in committing suicide, there is no means of showing what pleases us apart from what we do. In using such logic, I am only throwing a stone back to the glass house from which it came. For I am well aware that expressions of mystical experience will not stand to the test of logic. But unlike the Aristotelian, the mystic does not claim by logic the mystic does not claim to be logical. His sphere of experience is the unspeakable. Yet this means no more than that it is the sphere of physical nature, of all that is not simply conception, numbers, and words. If the experience of cosmic consciousness is unspeakable, it is true that in trying to utter it in words one is not saying anything in the sense of conveying information or making a proposition. The speech expressing such an experience the speech expressing such an experience is more like an exclamation, or better, it is the speech of poetry rather than logic. Though not poetry in the impoverished sense of a logical positivist, the sense of decorative and beautiful nonsense. For there is a kind of speech that may be able to convey something without actually being able to say it. Korzybski ran into this difficulty in trying to express the apparently simple point that things are not what we say they are, that, for example, the, world, the word water is not itself drinkable. He, formul he formulated it in his law of non-identity, that whatever you say a thing is, it isn't. But from this it will follow that there isn't a thing either, for if I say that a thing is a thing, it isn't. What, then, are we talking about? He was trying to show that we are talking about the unspeakable world of the physical nature, the world that is other than words. Words represent it, but if we want to know it directly, we must do so by immediate sensory contact. What we call things, facts, or events are, after all, no more than convenient unit, units of perception, recognizable pegs for names, selected from the infinite multitude of lines and surfaces, colors and textures, spaces and densities which surround us. There is no more a fixed and final way of dividing these variations into things than of grouping the stars and constellations. From this example, however, it is certainly clear that we can point out this unspeakable world and even convey the idea of its existence without being able to say exactly what it is. We do not know what it is. We, we know only that it is. To be able to say what it is, we must be able to classify it but obviously the all in which the whole multiplicity of things <clears throat> is the whole multiplicity of things is delineated cannot be classified the sphere of cosmic consciousness is i believe the same as the unspeakable world of koryebsky and the semantics it is nothing spiritual in the usual sense of ab of abstract or ide or ideational it is the concretely physical yet for this very reason ineffable or unspeakable and indefinable. Quote, cosmic consciousness is a release from self-consciousness, that is to say, from the fixed belief and feeling that one's organism is an absolute and separate thing, as distinct from a convenient unit of perception. For if it becomes clear that our use of the lines and surfaces of nature to divide the whole world into units is only a matter of convenience, 
then all that I have called myself is actually inseparable from everything. This is exactly what one experiences in these extraordinary moments. It is not that the outlines and shapes which we call things and use to de delineate things disappear into some sort of luminous void. It simply becomes obvious that though they may be used as divisions, they do not really divide. However much I may be impressed by the difference between a star and the dark space around it, I must not forget that I can see the two only in relation to each other, and that this relation is inseparable. The most astonishing feature of this experience is, however, the conviction that the entire unspeakable world is right, so right that our normal anxieties become ludicrous, that if only men could see it, they would go wild with joy, and the, and the king be cutting capers, and the priest be picking flowers. Quite apart from the difficulty of relating this sensation to the problem of evil and pain, there is the question of the very meaning of the assertion, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. I can say only that the meaning of the assertion is the experience itself. Outside that state of consciousness, it has no meaning, so much so that it would be difficult even to believe it as a revelation without the actual experience. For the experience makes it perfectly clear that the whole universe is through and through the playing of love in every shade of the world's use, from animal lust to divine charity. Somehow this includes even the holocaust of the biological world, where every creature lives by feeding on others. Our usual picture of this world is reversed so that every victim is seen as offering itself in sacrifice. If we are to ask whether this vision is true, we may first answer that there is no such things as truths by themselves. A truth is always in relation to a point of view. Fire is hot in relation to skin. The structure of the world appears as it does in relation to our organs of sense and our brains. Therefore, certain alterations in the human, human organism may turn it into the sort of percipient for which the world is as it is seen. But in the same way, other alterations will give us the truth of the world as it appears to the schizophrenic or to the mind in the Black Depression. There is, however, a possible argument for the superior truth of the cosmic experience. Its basis is simply that no energy system can be completely self-controlling without ceasing to move. Control is restraint upon movement, and because complete control would be complete restraint, control must always be subordinate to motion if there is to be motion at all. In human terms, total restraint of movement is equivalent of total doubt or, or refusal to trust one's sense or feeling in any respect, and perhaps its embodiment is the extreme catatonic who refuses every motion or communication. On the other hand, movement and the release of restraint are the equivalent of faith, of, coming, of committing oneself to the uncontrolled and unknown. In an extreme form, this would mean the abandonment of oneself to utter caprice, and at first sight, a life of such indiscriminate faith might seem to cor correspond to the vision of the world in which everything is right. Yet this point of view would exclude all, all control as wrong, and thus there would be no place in it for rightness or restraint. An essential part of the cosmic experience is, however, that a normal restriction of consciousness to the ego feeling is also right, but only and always because it is subordinate to the absence of restriction, to movement and faith. The point is simply that, if there is to be any life and movement at all, the attitude of faith must be basic. 
the final and fundamental attitude, and the attitude of doubt secondary and subordinate. This is another way of saying that towards the vast, all-encompassing background of human life, with which the philosopher as artist is concerned, there must be total affirmation and acceptance. Otherwise, there is no basis at all for caution and control with respect to the details of the foreground. But it is all too easy to become so absorbed in these details that all sense of proportion is lost, and for man to make himself mad by trying to bring everything under his control. We become insane, unsound, and without foundation when we lose consciousness of and faith in the uncontrolled and ungraspable background world which is ultimately what we, are, we ourselves are. And there is a very slight distinction, if any, between complete conscious faith and love. So that was This Is It, um, a short essay by Alan Watts in a collection of short essays by the same name. Uh, I hope it wasn't too hard to follow. Uh, I think reading an essay aloud sometimes could just be difficult. He's definitely a wordsmith, likes to play with words, and um, his essays have a pretty different flavor from his spoken conversations, which are a lot more uh, just fluid and playful. So... Uh, in reading that and thinking about that a little bit, um, it, it definitely, I think, uh, there's no, no question why I, I chose to uh, read it, how it uh, kind of integrates in with the first three uh, podcasts um, and, my, and the first one, which just kind of recounted one of my quote-unquote mystical experiences, uh, one of the earlier ones. And my reason for sharing these is not so much to, um, like, like, like Alan Watts said in the essay, it's not shared in the sense of trying to improve people and saying that this is an experience that we all must have. Um, it's saying that uh, this experience happens and we can see it throughout history um, pretty much synonymous with uh, all of the world's great teachers that if you really look at the the core or the unembellished um, teaching, um, and this is true of Christ even, that uh, he's really speaking in um, kind of temporal, culturally bounded uh, words and symbols. Um, they're all using whatever is closest at hand, their um, cultural iconography to convey the same underlying experience, which is itself unnameable. Um, and so in sharing these and thinking about these, I think uh, if, if uh, listening to these still sounds like, um, you know, the kind of just hocus-pocus mysticism and uh, it sounds like it's something that you've missed or, you know, you're, you're never going to get any, anywhere in these types of philosophies without the experience, you have to really pay attention to what these, uh, what these philosophers and mystics of the ages are saying. And, uh, I mean, one of the great characteristics of it is that the insight uh, can happen at any moment to anyone in any station of life. Um, it's the inevitable ecstasy uh, that you yourself are living right now without even realizing it. And that's kind of the underlying, um, one of the underlying uh, messages, I think, is that uh, regardless of how you've termed your experiences or what you've classified them as, uh, just in living at all, we're all participating in this uh, unspeakably um, vast whatever it is. Um, 
So uh, I, I share this because I think in order to move forward with uh, what I want to, when I want, what I really want to talk about, um, eventually, uh, especially just kind of shedding some light into some dark corners. Um, I mean, they're not dark corners in other parts of the world. Uh, just in our culture, some of like the uh, Western, or I'm sorry, Eastern um, ideas, and uh, just uh, really ev um, kind of taking a look at uh, the world mythologies. Um, there's really no way to start without putting something like this at the beginning. Um, that's not to say people don't, and I think most people don't, uh, really realize that what all of these religions are talking about uh, and talking about and talking about is this, uh, this, this, this experience of now as it is and just the totality of the moment, how, how in any given moment there's nothing left out. Um, and, it, and it is uh, ineffable, uh, un, unspeakable. And so all of these religions uh, and, and really all the, all the you know, more powerful philosophies really come from that realization. And then um, the vain and often futile attempt to convey that to another, another person through symbols and language which is what any mythology is, any religion, any, anything, is a, um, it's a symbol set that is supposed to evoke in us the instantaneous recognition of what we all are already doing and having. They say, uh, actually, <laughs> I think this is uh, a, a quote from Huckabee's, but it's, it's wonderful. I heard Huckabee's. He says, um, when you get it, you can relax because everything you could ever want or be, you already have and are. And it's that kind of, a, that kind of an idea. So um, when Christ says, uh, I and the Father are one, and, um, and in the Thomas Gospel, uh, he who drinks from my mouth will become as, as I am and I shall be he. Um, those kind of images, I think, really at the core are poetic and uh, they're, they're so um, buried in this day and age by all of this accessory iconography and imagery that um, the, the finger pointing at the moon, as it were, is confused for the moon. Um, that's another Zen image. Uh, they say that uh, Buddhism is a finger pointing at the moon. And it, it, the, the finger itself is not the moon, yet it's, it's pointing uh, suggesting. So if you get wrapped up in the image of the Buddha or, you know, the Buddha as a more, more or less profound spiritual character than Christ or, uh, you know, comparing these things in terms of, you know, fixed um, concepts that um, essentially the, the point has already been missed um, because you're, you're staring at the finger and thinking it's the moon. Um, so, yeah, in sharing, I mean, this kind of a, an underlying framework, I think, uh, whether or not it makes sense, um, it should at least be interesting, and I hope it comes out in your mind um, progressively as uh, we, we continue um, exploring some of the world's uh, great symbol systems in, in trying to indicate this uh, ineffable experience of life as it is. So, yeah, with that... Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that would be um, good to to discuss. I think I'll just leave it at that. So, um, yeah, This Is It by Alan Watts. And 
this is it, <laughs> my friends, and I will see you next time.